This morning we have the Song of Solomon, 8th chapter, beginning with the 4th verse. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? Under the apple tree I aroused you. There your mother conceived you, and there she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal over your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealously unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Thanks, Vern. Let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? Lord, as we're about to look into your word, we recognize that our hearts are hard. We need you by your spirit to soften us so that your word might go deep in the soil of our hearts and bring forth fruit. So, Lord, by your spirit, do that. We submit ourselves to you. May your word today teach us more what love really is all about. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, if you pay attention to the media today, to our culture, magazines, etc., marriage seems to be in real trouble. If you look at the lives of celebrities, if you watch the news, if you go to movies and watch TV shows, etc., all these would suggest that marriage is outdated, it's a mess, And if you really want true romance in your life, you won't find it in marriage. Now, that's what our culture is saying. But what do the scriptures say? (laughs) Well, the truth is, marriage is under attack, that's for sure. But most people in our culture still get married. And most people are reasonably content and happy in their marriages. But, as we all know, especially if you've been married for a while, (laughs) having a good marriage is not easy. And having a great marriage is rare. So, we're taking a break over the next three weeks from the book of Genesis. We started the book of Genesis, and we're going to continue working through it. But we're taking a break for the next three weeks, because as we started in Genesis, we were in Genesis 2, the creation of woman... That brought out a lot of marriage principles. And then last week, as we looked at Genesis 3, the fall and how sin caused conflict in the marriage relationship, we felt like we should, for the next three weeks, look at some major passages on marriage just to encourage us in this culture that is so anti-marriage and it's so difficult to have a strong marriage. So we want to remind ourselves of what the Scriptures have to say about marriage so that we can figure out what does it mean to go from the conflicts of Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve were having because of sin and selfishness and independence and go back as much as possible to Genesis 2 where there was the beauty of God's created plan for us in marriage. Let me just say if you're single, 
that there will be many relational principles we'll talk about over the next three weeks that will apply to you, so listen up as well. Today we're looking at the Song of Songs, or in some Bibles, the Song of Solomon. And it's a book of passionate romance. It's a wonderful book of passionate romance. Now let me just say a word to parents before we get started. Um, We will be talking today in a tasteful way about physical intimacy in marriage. But if you have a child here with you this morning and you're uncomfortable with them hearing uh, some teaching on that this morning, then I encourage you to go ahead and take your child to Sunday school or something that's, that's your prerogative and, uh, and that's your choice as a parent. Um, so feel free to take them to Sunday school now if you desire that. But as we go on, let me make a comment to you about how to interpret this book, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Throughout church history, Christians have looked at this book and they've seen, wow, this is really about romantic love. And romantic love has been scorned by Christians throughout history at times. They felt like, whoa, this doesn't belong in the Bible. What do we do with this book? And so, um, and even in certain Certain denominations, for example, the Roman Catholic Church today, even today, priests are not allowed to marry, and so marriage is seen as somehow second class. So a book that's about passionate, romantic love within a marriage, Christians haven't known how to interpret that. So throughout history, many times Christians have tried to see it as an allegory between the relationship between Christ and the church. And you can get some principles that way, but I just want to say that... um, Most directly, the most clear and direct way to interpret this book is simply as a love poem, a romantic poem of the love between a man and a woman. So scripture never backs down from reality, does it? And what could be more real to our culture and our lives than the romantic love between a man and a woman and the power of that Love. So I, I just want to say that that's how we are going to be looking at this book today, as a love poem about romantic love. And let me say, we need to understand this book. As I said, our culture is so confused about what romantic love is. Our culture has such a weak, pathetic view of what real romantic love is. Romance in our culture is largely seen as something that happens in having the passion of the moment and giving into the passion of the moment with whoever you're with at that particular time, often in a series of brief romantic relationships, our world teaches you have the right, you have the right, in fact, you have the need to satisfy your sexual desires in whatever passionate way feels good. That's what our world teaches. I have a friend I know quite well who said before he became a Christian, he told me he had slept with 157 different women. He'd kept count. And yet I can't think of another adult I know who was more confused and knew less about how to have a healthy, loving relationship. You see, when you give in to the wrong view of love, the world's view of love, what happens is people are left empty, broken, and unfulfilled. 
But romance is God's idea. He created it. And so we want to look this morning at Song of Songs because it shows us his plan for true, fulfilling romance. So let's look together at this wonderful book. There's eight chapters. We're going to be flying through all eight chapters this morning, just highlighting some things. And we're going to look at three different aspects of romance. Romance before the honeymoon, romance on the honeymoon. We won't spend a lot of time on that one, folks, so it's okay. And romance after the honeymoon to find out what God's view of true romantic love is. So we want to begin with romance before the honeymoon. And let me begin with the first little phrase that opens the book, Solomon's Song of Songs. This could mean two things. It's either written by Solomon or it's written for Solomon. Now, as you look at Solomon's life, remember back in Kings, it talks about his marriages. He had 700 marriages, 300 concubines. I don't think Solomon had a clue what real romantic love is. So my take on it is that this book was written for Solomon by someone who had really understood what romantic love is all about. So I want to bring out three principles that we see in romance before the honeymoon. Romance before the honeymoon. First, romance begins with communication. Romance begins with communication. Now, again, our world would teach us that romance begins with a lightning bolt. Pow! There's somebody I see and there's this powerful attraction and that's what hits you and boy, that's where romance begins. But as we see in this book, romance begins with communication. Look at verse 5. Here's the woman talking, the beloved, as she's described in the text. Dark am I, yet lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Don't stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard... I've neglected. Notice how the woman here is sharing her heart. She's sharing an insecurity that she has. She says, don't, don't stare at me. I'm really self-conscious about how I look. In their culture, beauty was, the, the ideal beauty was a woman who had no tan at all, who had pale, light skin because she'd been indoors always. She'd never had to work outside, and she had all the lotions and creams, had taken care of herself, made herself beautiful, and the pale skin was considered the mark of true beauty. And she says, I'm self-conscious because I don't fit the world's view of beauty. I, I was forced by my brothers to work outside in the vineyard, and I have a tanned face and tanned arms, and, and I'm really self-conscious about that. So she's sharing an insecurity with him, and she's opening up her heart. She's learning to do that. You see, true romance begins with communication as you learn to become vulnerable with one another and to share your hearts with one another, and your hearts begin to get knit together. When you try to begin romance by physical attraction or physical contact, it destroys true romance. Now, it's okay to be attracted to someone, but really, it can only develop and grow in this context of 
communication. So how does the man respond to her sharing her heart, her insecurity, her fear of rejection here? Notice verse 8. If you don't know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep, graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. This guy knows how to talk. Hey, hun, don't feel self-conscious. You remind me of a horse. (laughs) Wow, he knows how to get to her heart, doesn't he? (laughs) Let's look at this metaphor because it doesn't connect with us very well, okay? (laughs) Here's what he's saying. You know what? I know you're self-conscious. I know you're feeling like somehow that's a blemish that you have. But you're like a mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh's chariots would always be pulled by stallions. And he's saying it's like you're in the midst of the stallions and the stallions are going crazy because they all see you and you're gorgeous. He's saying not just I notice how beautiful you are, but man, everybody does. You see how encouraging he is? He doesn't focus on her blemish. He doesn't point out her insecurity or whatever or tell her to get over it. He actually says, you know what? You are so beautiful to me and to others. That's not an issue for me. You see, I love this picture of communication because it's a picture of how romantic love develops as you begin to appreciate one another and you begin to be vulnerable and you begin to share your heart and get to know one another and get to know those insecurities and begin to trust one another and see that those insecurities are something that the other person does not reject you for. It takes time for this to develop, doesn't it? It takes time for trust to develop. When Jeannie and I were dating, we, did, we just dated a few months and we were kind of getting to know each other and then we got engaged and we had a six-month engagement and I'll never forget how During those first few weeks of engagement, as we were finally in this context of, okay, we're engaged, we're moving towards marriage, that we each shared some really deep personal things that we'd never shared with anybody before. And it was scary. It was fearful. But in those times, as we began to build trust and began to say, well, you know, and began to question, are you going to reject me for this? Well, if you really know me, are you going to reject me for this? And we began to see that, wow, we're still loved and accepted and she still wants me and I still want her. And, and that romance begins to develop as you, through communication, develop a oneness emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, as you learn to communicate your relationship with God with one another, what's deepest in your heart. You see, that's where romance begins. And that's the first principle. Romance begins with communication. Romance begins with communication. Secondly, romance waits for God's timing. God's way of romance always waits for God's timing. They're getting to know each other now. The relationship's developing and they're being drawn to one another. And they're getting closer and closer. Then notice verse 16 of chapter 1. She's talking, the beloved. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. 
Do you know what verdant means? Green. Okay? They're having a rendezvous in the forest. And they're laying on the grass together. Verse 17. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. They're looking up at the forest. Above them, verse 3, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among young men. I delight to sit in his shade. They're spending time together. They're enjoying one another. And things are starting to get a little intense. (laughs) It's an intimate moment in the forest. And then notice verse 6. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Okay, they're laying there. He slips his arm around her. He's starting to hold her. And things are just getting a little too intense. Notice verse 7. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. This is a refrain that's repeated three times in this book. It's kind of the theme of the book of Song of Songs. What does this mean? Well, right in the middle when it gets hot and heavy, they go, oh, hey, we need to put a stop to this right now. This is not the appropriate time. When it says, do not arouse or awaken love, don't awaken romantic feelings, don't awaken that until it so desires. What does that mean? It means until the appropriate time, until love, true love, says it's okay. God's view of love, which is in a covenant married relationship. So they're in the forest, they have this hot and heavy time, and they go, whoa, stop right here. Don't awaken love until the right time. (laughs) They put a stop to it. And that rendezvous ends. Well, that's the first time that happens. Notice over in chapter 3, verse 4. They're spending more time together, and again, it's starting to get intimate. Verse 4 of chapter 3 Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house to the room of the one who conceived me. So she's feeling really romantic here. She says, I'm going to hang on to this guy. I'm going to take him into my home and actually into the bedroom where I was conceived. She's initiating this intimate time together. Now they're in the house. And notice the next verse, verse 5. Daughters of Jerusalem, (laughs) I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Ah, this is getting a little hot and heavy. We need to stop it now. (laughs) Let's remember the daughters of Jerusalem. Let's remember our friends. Let's turn back to accountability. Let's Make sure that others know where we are and we look to them. Let's wait. You see, true love waits. True love says, no, I'm going to save ourselves until the marriage night, until our honeymoon. Why is this so important? Why do they wait for the proper time? Why is it so important that true romance waits? Well, I do a lot of marital counseling, and I've seen so much damage from couples who don't wait. One of the things that happens, there's others, but one of the things that happens is it undermines trust. You know, the passion of the moment, you give in and you're not married yet. Maybe you're not even engaged, but, you know, maybe, and maybe you do end up getting married someday, but 
How can I really trust my spouse if they didn't have the self-discipline to wait when they knew it was wrong? How can I trust that later on, when they maybe feel an attraction to someone else, that they're going to have the discipline to not give in to that? When you don't wait, it undermines trust. And it also affects other people. Why? We often think, well, this is just between us. But you know, the daughters of Jerusalem are watching. (laughs) Others are watching. And how you respond at those times is something that will affect other relationships. It will affect your future spouse. It will affect your children in the future. It will have an effect in your lives. And it will do wonders if you wait for your sense of being loved. Wow, he loved me enough to wait. She loved me enough to not push me. We were able to wait together. Let me just say to those that are single here, and maybe you haven't waited Maybe you've already failed at this. Well, let me tell you that God is a forgiving God. He can redeem our wrong choices. And many are talking today about what they call secondary virginity. You may have failed, but secondary virginity says, you know what, I'm going to stay pure from this day forward. The past, I'm trusting God to forgive, but I will stay pure from this day forward so that when I do get married someday... I will have this secondary virginity. I will be celibate. I will be pure to that day. So let me strongly encourage you towards that. True romance. If you want to experience God's plan for romance, romance waits for God's timing. And we also see in this a third principle, this uh, refrain that's repeated, that romance stays accountable to others during this before the honeymoon time. The daughters of Jerusalem, they keep going back to them. Hey, we remember you're there. Hold us accountable. We're going to avoid situations that are going to get us into trouble and we're going to remember to hold ourselves accountable to other people so that we don't get into trouble. We need one another to help each other stay pure. So make sure you have accountability relationships to help you stay pure if you're single and in that situation. Others are watching. Well, those are three great principles we see in romance before the honeymoon. How about romance on the honeymoon? They've waited. They're excited. And in chapter 3, verse 6, is the wedding processional. Verse 6 says this, Who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it's Solomon's carriage escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing a sword, etc. It describes him coming in his beautiful carriage. And verse 11, Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. This is a description of a wedding processional. Now it's the wedding day. It's finally come. And there's all the elaborate detail and beauty. It's exciting. It's fulfilling because they have waited. And in chapter 4, verse 1, you see them beginning to develop this intimacy on their honeymoon. And we're not going to go into all the detail. (laughs) 
But it begins this way, verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Again, I wouldn't recommend this, trying this on your spouse. You remind me of a goat, honey. <laughs> not, not the, no, you don't smell like one. That's not, hun, I didn't know. <laughs> Probably won't help. <laughs> but what you see is you see the lover here drawing from the most beautiful images he can imagine from his culture and say, this is what you remind me of the incredible beauty that I see all around me. And so, for example, he pictures these, this flock of goats that descends down Mount Gilead, that comes down and flows down the hill. And this is probably the first time he's ever seen her with her hair let down as it cascades down over her shoulders. And he says, wow, that reminds me of the beauty of the cascading goats coming down the hill. And the other metaphors don't really communicate to us, but he goes on and he works his way down her body. He's seeing her for the first time and the incredible beauty. And they take time, and you just notice some things about this romance. They're taking time to enjoy one another and for conversation and to delight in one another because they've learned to communicate before this and really share their hearts and talk about difficult, intimate things they're able to talk about these deep personal things and really appreciate one another and delight in one another. There's trust built up. And notice verse 7 of chapter 4. He says this, All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Remember her insecurity about how she looks. Her fears about that, her wondering if she could be beautiful. And there she is, and she's kind of got a farmer's tan. (laughs) And he says, I don't see any blemish, none. You're beautiful to me. He's focusing on her beauty, not her faults. Not her faults. Remember back in Genesis chapter 2 in the creation of woman, verse 25. The man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. In this intimate moment, it's when there's a restoration of the fall. (laughs) This beauty of actually being seen for all that you are, heart, soul, body, everything, and yet someone still delights in you and wants you. That's God's plan for romantic love, and it can only occur in that intimate moment of marriage, marriage intimacy, physical intimacy in marriage. Well, you can read the rest yourself <laughs> um, in this honeymoon, but you just get a wonderful picture of communication and caring and delight in one another. But how about after the honeymoon? Romance after the honeymoon. What is that like? And what principles can we learn about romance after the honeymoon? Well, first one we see right away is that romance involves working through conflict. Romance involves working through conflict. Look at chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. They've spent time together. They've gotten to know each other. They've been married for a while. They're delighted in each other and... 
you know, life's gone on. They're kind of in the mundane world now of getting to know each other more deeply in marriage. It's, and listen to verse 2 of chapter 5. I slept, okay, the woman is speaking here. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dew, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew. My hair with the dampness of night. Okay, so the king often had a separate bed chamber, so maybe that's what's going on here, and she's got her own chambers where they slept, and then they'd come together. Or what he says is his hair is damp with dew. When does the dew fall? Really early in the morning, right? And he's been out in it, so he's been outside. He's been out running around, maybe working, maybe doing something else, but he's been running around all night. He comes in, he's kind of wet with the dew in the night, and he's knocking on the door and he says, Hey, babe, are you ready for me? (laughs) Listen to her response. Verse 3. I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? (laughs) I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Uh, I don't know about you, but I read some frustration there. (laughs) And... Maybe she's frustrated because he's, he's been out and instead of being with her, he's, he's off doing his own thing and then he just runs, comes home and says, hey, are you ready for me? And she's going, how come you were with me? What are you doing? You know, that's not the way to do this. And her feelings are hurt. She's feeling rejected because he was gone. And so essentially what she's saying, not tonight, honey, I got a headache. Now, not that this has ever happened in any of your relationships, I'm sure. But she's saying, no, forget it. I don't feel like it. Well, it goes on. My lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my lover and my hand dripped with myrrh, my fingers with the flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. And now it appears to me that he says, fine. If you're not going to respond to me, I'm out of here. So he leaves. His feelings are hurt. Her feelings are hurt. They're having conflict. And, you know, this happens. Every marriage has conflict. Sin has entered in. The fall has entered in. And so there's this struggle. This conflict we have, we have our own desires and we want things our way and when it doesn't go our way, our feelings get hurt. There's difficulty, there's pain, there's struggle, but true romance involves working through the conflict. As you go on in this passage, it says, verse 7, she went out looking for him and the watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak. Those watchmen of the walls, O daughter of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I'm faint with love. Now, we don't know exactly what happened here, whether this is metaphorical or whether she literally went out and was beaten up or whatever, but I think the point is when you have conflict in your marriage, there's pain, there's hurt, there's bruising that happens. So how do you get through that? Well, as you read on in the passage, they finally come back together and you don't see all the details, but what I picture is that they finally forgive each other and they get beyond it. And, 
you, what you do see in how they make up is they're focusing not on you did this and you did that, but they're focusing on what they appreciate about the other person. You see, what makes conflicts, conflicts are going to happen. But what makes them go on and on and on is when we hang on to those irritations. Yeah, but you did this. Yeah, but you're this way. Yeah, but you were selfish. And, and that's what we focus on. But as you read on in the passage, what you see them doing is saying, you know what, I really appreciate you. And here's some of the things I really appreciate about you. What that does is it allows your relationship to get beyond the conflict and begin to grow beyond it to a place where you're enjoying and appreciating each other again. That is a critical principle if you want to learn to work through conflict is to learn to focus not on the problem but on what you delight in about the person. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, as their relationship is developing, they say, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. I picture these conflicts and the irritations that come in as foxes. And they come in and they're going to destroy the fruitfulness of the relationship. And there's plenty of marriages that have been destroyed over little things that people have focused on and allowed to become big things rather than going back to what do I delight in about you and choosing to create an environment of encouragement in your marriage. If there's an environment of encouragement, of appreciation, of delight, those conflicts begin to just wash away. Those foxes get chased out of the vineyard so your relationship can be fruitful again. So romance after the honeymoon, the first principle is romance involves working through conflict. You can't avoid it. Secondly, romance matures over time. Romance matures over time. As you read through, and we don't have time to do it, through chapter 7 into 8, as their relationship is continuing to mature, you see them again delighting in each other, enjoying time together, communicating together about their love and their care. Folks, if you're going to have romance in your relationship and it's going to continue to grow, you've got to commit to having regular time together, to share your hearts together, to spend time together. It's got to be regular. So many couples just kind of live their lives and drift apart. You've got to communicate. And one thing I love about what I see how they're communicating as you read through chapter 7 into 8 is that they're highlighting some of the things that they loved about the person before. You know, I really love this about you. I love this. But they're noticing other things. And you know what? I also enjoy this about you. Over time, they're getting to know each other better. They're getting to enjoy each other better. And as they see those new things about the other person, they're learning to enjoy those. That is a maturing romance, a maturing relationship where they're learning, getting to know each other better and better. And men, that is so critical for us that we, we choose to keep getting to know our wives better and better. They're a mystery for a reason because we can never fathom the depths of how wonderful they are. And the more we seek to know that and appreciate who they are, the more your love matures and grows. They keep seeing newer, deeper things about one another. And then 
Look over in chapter 8, verse 5. Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? They've reached old age. And here they are, not jumping on the hills and all the like things they've talked about earlier. They're actually leaning on each other. And they're coming up from the desert. I picture this, that, you know, there's some hard things in life they've faced. Life is hard. But those hard things in life, walking through the desert, dealing with not fruitfulness all the time, but some real pains and difficulties as they've walked through life and raised kids and all of that, that those things have not driven them apart. In fact, they've driven them together. And here they're leaning on one another as they come up from the desert. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a mature, deep love? There's a mutual interdependence. They've become one over time as they've gotten rid of the foxes, the conflict, and they've grown through those to appreciate and delight in one another, and they've forgiven and focused on what they love about their spouse, and now they've got a mature love. They're even deeper lovers, more mature lovers than they were when they first got married. Now, the book ends with some principles, the lessons of a lifelong romance. And I just want to highlight these. This is the passage that Vern read earlier, and I just want to highlight three principles that I see in this. Number one, this is what they've learned over a years of a romantic relationship. True love flourishes in covenant, in a committed relationship, in a covenant committed relationship. Notice what it says in verse 6. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal over your arm. Now, this could be past tense. You have placed me like a seal. Now, in those days, a seal was a personal mark. You'd stamp it into clay that was, or either clay or wax that was hot and melted, and you'd leave your stamp. It was a picture of, this is mine. I'm committed to this once for all. And she's saying, You've placed me like a seal over your heart. You've made me number one in your life, beloved. And because you've done that, we've had a lifelong romance. We're sealed together forever. Essentially what that means is a commitment that says, like those vows on your wedding day, I'm committed to you and I will let nothing come between my heart or my arm and you. I will not let my career, I will not let my job, I will not let money, I will not let my pain, my struggles, my family, I will not let anything come between you and me. I am committed to you no matter what. You will always be first in my heart. True love flourishes in that kind of covenant, committed relationship, in a marriage relationship. That's one of the lessons they've learned. Second lesson they've learned is that true love is powerful. True love is powerful. Verse 6, middle of the verse says, For love is as strong as death. Its jealousy unyielding is the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Love is as strong as death. 
Essentially, what they've learned is that love is the most powerful force in the universe. There's nothing else in the universe that can heal hearts, that can cover sin, that can cause someone to grow and flourish when they're loved the way that God wants us to love one another. Why is this? Because God is love. And a married relationship that reflects God's love has the power to heal lives within that marriage and outside of that marriage. There's nothing more powerful in the universe than this kind of love because it's a love that can only come from God. And that's why I think he says, it burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. If you misuse it, if you try to get it outside of the covenant relationship, if you try to do it the way the world tries to get love, you will get burned. And we live in a culture where people have burned hearts. They've been burned over and over again and they need to see a picture of God's romantic love so they can have healing. Notice it says it's jealous. I had a woman come into my office and say, you've got to help me deal with my jealousy. I'm just really struggling with jealousy. I said, well, tell me why. What's going on? She said, well, my husband at work has his co-worker and he meets with her a lot and they go out to lunches together. They spend quite a bit of time and I'm just feeling really jealous about it. And I said, you should be jealous. <laughs> you have a committed relationship. He needs to be exclusively reserved for you and he should not be building intimacy with another woman. It may be work-related. It may appear innocent, but it's dangerous. Love should be jealous and protective of the relationship because it's meant to be an exclusive covenant relationship where nothing is allowed to intrude. Final principle I see here that, that they, they have learned over time is that true love is the most valuable thing in life. Verse 7, Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Nothing is more valuable than a loving relationship, being able to truly love one another well. It's a gift that is a gift straight from God. God is love, and marital love is the closest thing we can experience to the kind of love God has for us. So, in conclusion, if you're not married... Use the time you have now to learn to love well, to learn to communicate well, to learn to understand the opposite sex, to learn to protect the other person's heart and body, to not use another person for your own pleasure, but learn to love well. True love is worth waiting for, so guard your own heart and body too. Don't give it to someone who hasn't committed themselves to you in a wedding day. And if you're struggling, find God's forgiveness for you. He forgives and start fresh today. Today. And if you are married, let me just ask, are you growing in your relationship? Is, are you growing in your communication, in your delight for your spouse? Are you learning to appreciate more and more things about them? Are you learning to focus on what you delight in about them rather than what bugs you? But are you learning to forgive and let go of resentment 
and letting God change your heart so that you are growing in love for one another. That's God's plan. Romance is God's idea. It's God's idea. Don't let the world's perspective or your own selfishness destroy the joy of romantic love that God designed for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for creating love so that we could have a taste of what it means in how you love us in our relationships with one another. Lord, prick our hearts in the areas we need to grow in and help us give those to you. Help us let go of resentments. Help us learn to focus on what we delight in one another. Help us learn to love as you love us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.